welcome to Mysteries and Mimosas. My name is Max Sterling, and I'm here with my co-host, Aria. Hi, everyone. Hey, Aria. So, what do you have for us today? So, today's trivia is taking us again back to the year of 1974. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. I'm doing it this week, right? Yeah. I guess. Because I don't have any trivia questions right. prepared, so I guess that would be me yes. by default. Yeah, I'm going to just say that last week I killed it at trivia. Um, yeah, I feel pretty confident about this week. How many questions do you have? Three. Okay, that was my first trivia question, and you passed. You do have three questions. Go ahead. Question number one. Actually, question number two. Okay. Who tried and failed to jump the Snake River in Idaho in 1974? I didn't even know there was a Snake River in Idaho. Well, let's see. It's not a person that can do like a long jump. I'm thinking like a motorcycle. Is it Evil Knievel? It is Evil Knievel. Yeah, that's an easy one. That is easy. Question number one. What Ray Stevens song, which described a new a new running fad, hit number one in 1974? I don't know. No idea. The streak. The streak. That's a mm-hmm. fad? Well, I mean, streaking. Okay. I guess. All right. So one for two. All right. The final question in this week's trivia. Who knocked out George Foreman at the Rumble in the Jungle in 1974? All right. I'm just going to say that's a pretty easy question because, you know, I'm a boxing fan. It's going to be Muhammad Ali. Yep, you're right. Muhammad Ali. I'm, I don't know. I think I was too easy on you again. Well, I mean, I didn't really know Evil Knievel. I just took a wild guess. Well, that would be anybody's guess. Who who else was out jumping rivers and gorges and all that in the 70s? Evil Knievel, of course. I don't know. It, it, that was an easy question. I think most people would get that one. The Ray Stevens song, that was difficult. But then, I know you're a boxing fan, so... That was easy yeah, for you. You know, I don't know. It, it it was easy for me. I'm not a boxing expert by any means, but I definitely know boxing better than baseball. Um, but my time was really, you know, being a fan of boxing was in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I grew up watching Mike Tyson and Butterbean and, you know, all those great boxers of the 80s and 90s. I know it's not the same, but... Who's your favorite WWF wrestler or WWE, whatever it is? The fake wrestling. Who's your favorite wrestler? And I, yeah, I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's fake. I know yeah. you think it's real. <laughs> no? No, I don't, e- I don't even know one. I can't even give you a, a favorite because I don't know any of them. None? I don't think so. I mean, probably if you say a name, then I'll be like, oh, okay. Well, I mean, you have Hulk Hogan. Oh, Hulk Hogan, of course. Yeah, that's the only one Andre I know. Andre the Giant. Uh, okay. I know you're a big Ultimate Warrior fan. No. I always oh, see it on your Ultimate lock Warrior. No. So, okay. I do have to just talk about this real quick. I will randomly pick up my cell phone in front of people, mind you. It's happened many times. And go to unlock it. And there's a giant wallpaper of the Ultimate Warrior I've, on there. And yeah, people are like, why do you have that on your phone? And I think the same thing. I just don't understand it. No. I just thought you were a super fan. No, 
No, it's you every what every do you mean? time. I'm not the ultimate warrior. No, you unlock my phone and you put random weird wallpapers, and the ultimate warrior is one of them. There have been others as well, mm. but uh, that one is a popular one for you. You can't prove it. You can't prove that it's me. I didn't do it. Okay. Hey, if you're into the ultimate warrior, I support you. I appreciate it. No. No? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if this is the first time you've listened, take a quick break from this episode and listen to last week, which was part one of this two-part episode. So last week we talked about Jeannie Marie Schoen. Jeannie was sent to the store to buy a pack of cigarettes for her uncle from her grandma's house. After purchasing the cigarettes at the store, Jeannie told the store clerk she was going to use the leftover change to go play pinball at a nearby arcade, but the arcade owner turned Jeannie away because he was cleaning the floors. Witnesses reported seeing a man on a blue bicycle take Jeannie after he had forced her into a bathroom and they saw her come out crying. And as a result, Jeannie was never seen or heard from again. So this incident happened on July 21st of 1974. If you fast forward about a week and a half to, to August 1st, Milette and Annette Anderson turned up missing. So Milette and Annette were left at home alone when their mother and their older sister went out to take care of a sick relative. The girl's dad was out fishing and ran into some engine trouble on his boat. When he called the girls to let them know he was going to be late, he heard the family dog barking in the background. And about 15 minutes later, because he was worried, he called back to check on the girls but received no answer. When he arrived home, the dog was locked inside a room in the house, and Annette and Milette were nowhere to be found, and they've never been seen or heard from again. So before we get into this week's episode, um, I just want to give you our mimosa recipe because you forgot. No, that you were supposed to do that. That's Sorry, your job that's true. this week. Mm-hmm. I know. So this mimosa recipe, I'm actually going to name it after you. Because it's a spicy recipe. (laughs) So this one's pretty simple. You just take a slice of a jalapeno and you put it in the bottom of your champagne glass. And then you pour about a shot, shot and a half of pineapple juice. And then you top it off with the rest of your um, champagne. So it's a spicy pineapple mimosa. It's delicious. Wow. So I have to, I am not trying that tonight. So... That's interesting. I'll have to try one. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make you one. It's delicious. Yeah. I I mean, I like anything spicy, but um, little tip, pro tip on this recipe. If you want it a little spicier, leave the seeds in. If you want to dial down the spice, take the seeds out. So let's get into this uh, part two of the summer of 1974. So on September 27th, 1974, just before 7 p.m., 12-year-old Virginia Suzanne Helm was sent to a local store only one block away from her home, which was located at 1941 Dean Road, to purchase soap. That's crazy. That's a lot like um, Jeannie, sent to the store to purchase cigarettes. This girl sent to the store to purchase soap? Yep. When Virginia hadn't returned home 45 minutes later, her worried father went out to look for her. Virginia's father was unable to locate her. Police conducted searches all around Beach Boulevard and Dean Road, but unfortunately nothing was found. And this is in the same city of Jacksonville, Florida? Yes, all of these girls went missing in the Jacksonville area. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Which is super coincidental. Yeah, it's all within a three-month time span, so it's, it's it's, you know, five little girls go missing 
That's that's a lot to happen in three months in the same community. Right. Three days later, a couple reported seeing a red VW Beetle parked along New Kings Road near the Duval-Nassau border. There was a man outside of the car, so the couple decided to stop to see if he needed any help. As they approached, the couple reported seeing a young girl matching Virginia's description kneeling on the back floorboard of the car. They described the girl as kneeling with her hands palm down on the seat as if she was trying to stand up. The man who was standing outside of the car when the couple approached yelled at the young girl to get down. The couple described the girl's eyes as very large and moving furtively back and forth. They said she appeared to be very frightened. The girl never said anything to the couple. As the couple was looking at the girl in the back seat, the man jumped in the driver's seat and sped away quickly. Yeah, this is probably Virginia. Just because why would he tell her to get down when the couple's approached and then why would he speed away? Yeah, I mean, furthermore, why was he parked along the road like that? I I mean, the couple apparently thought he was having car trouble, right? He's outside of the car, so they're like, oh, maybe he needs help, and that's why they walked up. But obviously the car was fine. He sped off, so who knows why he was stopped, why why the little girl was on kneeling on the floorboard in the back seat. It's The whole thing is a bizarre scene to walk up on. For sure. So... As the man rushed to get away, a bag fell out of the car. Like when he opened the door, a bag fell out. Like a plastic bag? Yeah, I, I believe so. Some kind of a bag. I, I don't know for sure what kind. They just described it as a bag fell out of the car. That bag was actually collected by police and tested for fingerprints at that time. But that was 1974. So I'm wondering, could that bag now be tested for DNA all these years later? Well, I I would think so. Well, it depends on how well it was preserved. Right. I think that depending on what testing they did for fingerprints, you know, there, there may be some degradation of the DNA or the trace DNA that would be present, you know, now, or not present now, but able to be tested now. Yeah. Um, depending on what technique they used, you know, whether they dusted with, you know, and I don't know what kind of bag this is. I mean, there's different ways to test for fingerprints. So depending on what kind of bag it was and what method they used, there might be no DNA evidence left to test. Yeah. But I mean, good on that couple for being like, okay, red flag, this is a weird situation and we're going to call the police and let them know. And we'll let them know that that bag fell out of the car. So maybe that has some kind of evidentiary value. I mean, good on them for reporting that whole thing. Yeah. And so I know that you know, the way that it would work if they did have any evidence, DNA evidence on that bag, they would also need to have a controlled sample of whoever touched it, meaning if these if this couple picked it up, they would have to right. have a controlled sample of their DNA in order to eliminate them basically as a known as a known contributor. Sure. And so, you know, a lot of times when people handle evidence that's exactly what police have to do is they have to identify everybody whose DNA is known to be on that, collect their DNA to send it off to the lab so they have something to compare it to. Yeah. And hopefully this hasn't ever been tested for DNA and there still is some sort of DNA available on that bag to find that unknown contributor. Yeah. I mean, and this is 1974, so obviously there's no cell phones or anything. So in order for this couple to get a hold of the police, they would have had to have left the scene to go call from somewhere. So 
Chances are maybe they picked up that bag and took it with them. Who knows? Maybe they left it there and were lucky enough when the police came back it was still there. Who knows? I mean, those are the details we don't have. But all in all, at least they have the bag. And so if there is any sort of DNA on it, hopefully they can test it and find it. Yeah, and, you know, I guess it's worth mentioning too. I mean, if it's like a grocery bag, it could have the the bagger. You know, True. or the clerk from the grocery store could have their DNA. I mean, it could have so any. So really all it's going to do is give them an investigative lead. Yeah, but I mean, it's something, right? A hundred percent. It is something. Yeah. So the day before Virginia disappeared, another little girl named Marianne was walking down Glendale Avenue, which is less than a mile away from where Virginia went missing, when a man in a red compact car approached her and told her to get in. The man told Marianne he would kill her if she didn't listen and get in his car. Thankfully, Marianne didn't listen, and she ran for help instead. Marianne actually knew Virginia. The two of them would walk to the school bus stop together. Marianne described Virginia as quiet, but very sweet and kind. On October 25, 1974, a couple was walking through the woods near Beechwood and Beach Boulevard looking for pine cones when they made a gruesome discovery. What did they find? Unfortunately, they found Virginia Helm partially buried in the woods and wearing only a blouse. Virginia had been shot in the head. Reports from the time indicate there was no evidence of sexual assault. The wooded area was searched on foot and by horseback, looking for the possible graves of Jeannie, Milette, and Annette, who had gone missing in July and August and never been found. Okay, can we... Stop for a second. Mm -hmm. When, can you give me the date again when she was reported missing? Yeah, that was back, It was. it's about a month time frame. She was okay. reported missing on September 27th, and then her body was found uh, by that couple in the woods on October 25th. Okay, so about a month. Mm -hmm. And she's only wearing a blouse and she's shot in the head. Yes. Okay, and so investigators believe that there was no signs of sex assault that's what the report said at the mm -hmm. time so you know depending on what level of you know when she was when she was murdered mm -hmm. um would you know you would get different evidence based on when she was murdered so if she was you know murdered more recently obviously you'd get more evidence versus if she was murdered fairly quickly you would have that decomposition you would have that decomposition that degrades the evidence. Sure. So I don't know what made them believe that there was no sex assault that happened other than maybe there's a lack of like a male DNA, you know, lack of semen or something like that. I'm just going to say if she's found wearing only a blouse, that's indicative of a sex assault. Yeah, I agree. I, I was kind of surprised to see that. And that's just what the reports were at that time. I don't know. Well, I'm just going to say that just because at the time they didn't have any signs of sex assault doesn't necessarily mean she wasn't sexually assaulted. Sure. So they conducted the searches of the area, but no evidence of the three girls or anyone else was found. So due to that red compact car in Virginia's disappearance and then the attempted abduction of Marianne the day before, police briefly considered whether or not Ted Bundy may have been involved. However, it was revealed that Bundy was killing victims in Washington State at this time, so he was eventually ruled out. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. And 
You know, I've I don't know a whole lot about Ted Bundy, but I you know I do know all I see is this image of his VW Bug in a museum, and I think it's it's like white or cream colored. It's not red. Yeah. But I know that you know there was some question about a red VW Bug early on in in what he was doing, or sometime during his crime spree. He stole one in I believe it was in 1978. He stole one in Florida. I thought it was reported as orange, but I mean, orange and red can be similar depending on the shade. Yeah, but, you, but you're saying that Ted Bundy wasn't even in Florida at this time. He was not. He was killing victims. Actually, he killed a victim on July 14th of 1974, which would have been seven days before the first, uh, before Jeannie went missing. And that was in Washington state. Um, so police ruled that out. He was, oh, yeah. Yeah, he was being, he was active out. In Washington at this time. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Now we'll move into the fifth little girl that went missing during that three-month time span, Rebecca. On October 16, 1974, 12-year-old Rebecca Ann Green left her home to walk the five blocks to her local corner store to purchase some sodas. So again, so we have Jeannie that was walking to the store, Virginia that was walking to the store, and now Rebecca that was walking to the store. So the only the only two that weren't going to the store or were outside their home are Milet and Annette. They were taken from their home. So according to the store clerk, Rebecca arrived at the store, made her purchase, and then left. Rebecca was never seen alive again. A large-scale search ensued once Rebecca's parents reported her as missing. The community was searching for the little girl in a light green dress. As the search continued, tensions began rising as Rebecca was now the fifth little girl missing from the Jacksonville community in three months' time. Everyone began to wonder if all the cases were connected, but police at the time said they had no evidence to support the cases had anything to do with one another. None of the five missing girls had ever run away before, and all four of the girls who had gone missing before Rebecca appeared to have a happy home life. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case for Rebecca. Rebecca's father suffered from schizophrenia and molested both Rebecca and her sister. Due to this, police questioned Rebecca's father in her disappearance, and he stated he had nothing to do with it. He took of course a po- he did. Yeah. Well, he took a polygraph related to Rebecca's disappearance, and he passed it. Well, that's something. Yeah. So Rebecca wasn't seen again. Until three years later, in the summer of 1977, a fisherman was fishing off Fort George Island near the mouth of the St. John's River when he found the skeletal remains of Rebecca. Unfor- how, terif- how terrible would that be? Oh my gosh, yeah, I can't imagine. That, it, it is awful. As the person who found her and then her parents, and really an entire community. Because, you know, when you have something like this happen... That community is invested in that. They, they're, they're out searching. They're asking questions. You know, they're scared. You know? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. So, yeah. It's, well, it's and especially when you have five little girls in a very short amount of time come up missing. And, and how many of them were discovered? I can't remember. So, no. It'll be Virginia and Rebecca are the only ones who have ever been found. Yeah. So, Jeannie was never found, right? And, and I know Myla and Annette. and Annette weren't. Nope. None, so, none of them. None of the three of them. 
So now we're like four decades later, none of them have ever been found. Yeah, and so you have a, an entire community that is faced with these kids being, uh, you know, abducted or taken or missing, mm -hmm. and then two of them come up, you know, murdered. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to shock the entire community at that time. I'm sure tensions were high everywhere. Yeah. So unfortunately, due to the decomposition, investigators were unable to identify Rebecca's cause of death. Interestingly enough, the original detective assigned to Rebecca's case cut off a chunk of her hair from her skull and preserved it in a sealed bag. The hair is now being sent off for testing to see if there's any DNA that can be lifted from it. So the detective, you know, spoke about if the perpetrator handled Re Rebecca's head or skull in any way, there could possibly be his DNA on that hair. Wouldn't that be crazy if it matched the, you know... A possible DNA on the bag. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah. Very, very crazy. It is. So police are still unsure if these cases are connected, but they all remain unsolved at this time. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office cold case unit continues to follow up on any leads they receive. And I did find an interesting little tidbit of information when I was doing my research so in 1978, so that's four years after these five girls went missing, the daughter of the lead detective in the cases, Lester Parmenter, was approached by Ted Bundy in a red VW Beetle. She was able to get away and write down the plate number of the vehicle. After Bundy killed his final victim, who was 12-year-old Kimberly Leach in Lake City, Florida, the license plate detective Parmenter's daughter had recorded was actually used to help catch him. That's crazy. It is. You see, you have this detective who's, you know, the lead detective on all these little girls that have gone missing. And then his daughter is almost abducted by Ted Bundy and has enough, you know, thought to not only get away from him, but write down that plate number and actually helps catch Ted Bundy. Yeah, good for her. And I think growing up as a, you know, Gen X kid, you know, my, my parents or my mom, always taught me stranger danger. But what, you know, our parents of our generation didn't do was they didn't teach us about manipulative people or those tricky people that are closest to us. And statistics show that whenever kids are, you know, molested or hurt, it's usually, I mean, the high, the high probability is that it's somebody close to them. And we don't teach our kids, we don't have those conversations with our kids enough to let them know, hey, you don't, you know, you need to be aware of these tricky people. You don't have to interact with them. You you can tell mom and dad, you know, or a trusted adult about these weird interactions. Trust your gut. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think, yeah, even today, parents are still doing that. Think about it. You know, you have a little kid and you're getting ready to leave a family gathering or something. And, and you tell, tell them, hey, Go give Uncle Jimmy a hug. Oh, I don't want to. Well, you have to because if you don't, it's rude. It looks like you're being rude if you don't give him a hug. Well, I don't like to. And then you tell the kid, I don't care. Just go do it. I mean, literally you are reinforcing in that child's mind that they can't say no and they can't set those personal boundaries. They're trying to set that personal boundary. For whatever reason, they don't want to give that person a hug. And you as a parent, because you don't want to be seen as rude, you don't want your kid to be seen as rude, you're forcing them to do that. So then when they get older, they're teenagers now, 
if something's happening to them and they don't like it or they're not comfortable with it, their brain goes back to, oh, well, if I say no or if I say I don't like this, I'm being rude or that person's not going to like me anymore because I told them no. You know what I mean? And and so well, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a thing that's gone back generations, and, I think, and we still do it today. And not only are you reinforcing that behavior to to do something they don't want to do and you're stripping of them, you're stripping them of those personal boundaries. You are also setting the message that um, they can't tell you about it because they know you're going to be upset if they try to tell you something that's wrong because you made them do this. You made them go talk to it. Exactly. And, you know, I just think it's something that parents should be aware of. I think that it is important to build healthy relationships with family members and to, you know, encourage those moments of, you know, hugging your uncle or your, your, you know, your grandpa or something when you're saying goodbye, but also being aware that you are, you may be, if you're forcing them when they don't want to, and you're pushing that issue, you may be forcing them to do something they don't want to do and stripping them of their personal boundaries. Absolutely. That's exactly what you're doing. It doesn't matter if they're five or six years old, they still have a right to not be touched or not touch someone if they don't want to. And I think we as a society need to realize that just because they're children doesn't mean that they don't, you know, they want to give hugs to everybody or touch everybody or want to be touched. You as an adult don't want to do that. So why are we forcing little kids? But I, you know, it just takes me back. I was thinking about how Marianne described Virginia as quiet, but very kind and sweet. And so maybe her parents did teach her about stranger danger but she was such a sweet and kind little girl that if somebody came up and said, hey, you know, come over here, she did it because she is sweet and kind and she didn't want to be rude. So again, I, th- I just think it's a conversation to have with our kids that if you feel uncomfortable about something, let somebody know. You, you don't have to do something just to please other people so that it doesn't make you seem rude. If it's at the expense of you feeling okay. Oh, no, 100%. And, you know, another thing that is worth mentioning is, you know, we talk to our kids and we always tell them what. When, if, if you experience something bad, if anybody touches you inappropriately, what do we tell our kids to do? To tell an adult. Right, but when? Right away. Right. And so when you tell a kid to tell me right away if anything ever happened to you, and they don't come to you right away because they're dealing with their own emotions and they're trying to process what happened to them. As time goes on, what do you think happens? Well, then they feel like they're going to get in trouble because they didn't come to you right away. Exactly. And so it's more important now, studies have found, to tell our kids, hey, if anybody, you know, if anybody ever does anything to you or if you're ever touched inappropriately or something happens where an adult tells you to keep a secret, you can come talk to me. And you don't put a timeline on it or a time limit on it because you want that child to feel comfortable coming forward to you to give you that information without judgment. That's a really good point, actually. I never thought about it that way. You know, just encouraging our kids to, even if it's not an, a, you know, a parent, if, your kid, if you think your kid might not be comfortable talking to you about whatever it is they might be experiencing, as long as you also encourage those healthy trusted adults that they can talk to, whether it's a school counselor or a teacher, somebody that's trusted that they can go to, to report, you know, any, any type of neglect or abuse. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, kids might not always be comfortable coming, coming to you with their problems. So yeah, just knowing that they have someone that they trust that they can go to and talk about it. And I also think it's worth mentioning that the parents of the 1970s and 80s, even 90s, have a completely different job than parents today. For sure. They're parenting in a completely different way. They didn't have to worry about social media, sexual exploitation, internet crimes against children. They didn't have to worry about all these things, and they didn't have to educate their kids about the things that we have to educate our kids about today. Yeah, we're it's a totally different time now to be a parent. Yeah, I mean, I think since we're on this topic, it's worth mentioning and having that discussion with your kids that, hey, be aware, be self-aware of the things that you're posting on social media, the things that you're sharing, because those things do not disappear. And although Snapchat and some of these platforms claim that these images or these things that they share disappear immediately, they actually stay on the on the servers of those platforms for quite some time. They don't ever just go away completely. Yeah, I always see actually on social media these memes where it says, like, thank God there was no like so, there were no cell phones or social media when I was a kid. I mean, because now, I mean, and that goes for anyone now. Like, you can be recorded doing anything now, and then that gets posted on the internet, and it doesn't go away. It's out there forever at that point. So I think just as a general rule, we just need to respect each other more regardless. Yes. Oh, yeah. No. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I think that if there was Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or anything like that when I was a kid growing up, I'd be in a lot of trouble. I'd be posting everything. Well, I mean, yeah, think about it. Kids their brains are not fully developed. They're not mature enough to understand that, hey, I think this is funny now, or I think this is cute now. I'm going to post it. They don't really understand the consequence of that action. Even if you talk to them about it, their brain doesn't comprehend that that's never going away once it's posted. So yeah, we actually have a really hard job now as parents to have these conversations because it just was not a thing when we were kids. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, and one of these days I'm going to write a book, and I'll actually autograph my first copy and give it to you free of charge. Thank you. No, but seriously, I think that I'm, this is just totally in my brain. I don't have any research or proof to back it up, but what I want to write is a book about interviews and interrogations and and the differences between young adults, juveniles, and older adults. I've noticed that the older the person, the easier it is to get a confession. And I think there's a direct correlation between confessions with older adults compared to younger adults based on the ability of adults to process and understand long-term consequences. Because there are studies that show that, you know, and I'm not a psychology major. Maybe I need to, you know, do this as part of my research when I write this book. But I know that young adults, uh, specifically men, their brain does not develop that piece to understand long-term consequences till like their mid or late 20s. Women develop it much quicker. Well, women are generally more mature than men, but none of us at that age 
really have that full ability. As teenagers, you think impulsively. Oh, no, 100%. But, you know, I think that's why it's easier to get a confession out of an older adult than it is a young child. Because when you're a teenager, those are the worst people to interview because they can't see the long-term consequences. And so when you do an interview or an interrogation with them, none of that stuff matters to them. So you can't really find the edge to get them to confess. It really actually makes sense. Yeah, whereas, you know, an adult... And especially an older adult, they they can see those long-term consequences. They actually feel a lot more remorse. They actually, you know, there's a certain point in time when when adults say, I just, I get it. I'm done. I don't want to play this criminal lifestyle anymore. I don't, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And they grow up. Everybody does it at some point, hopefully before we die. But everybody grows up at some point where they decide I'm done doing, you know, my criminal life. Yeah. I mean, just think about it in your own life. You know, even if you've never had that criminal lifestyle, if you just look back at yourself, you can see that evolution of you becoming just more self-aware. That personal growth. Yeah. Like you really become more insightful as you get older. You have life experience. You know, you have all these things that happen to you. And then one day you're just sitting there and you just realize like, oh, I'm like really self-aware of this thing about, about myself that, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't even think was an issue but now I'm like yeah oh, that's for for I me I could work on that. Yeah, no, I could work on that and for me it changes from week to week. Like for instance, last week I thought I just was the best at trivia that there ever was. And then this week I just know it because I just I killed it this week whereas last week I thought I killed it and I just did okay. I just got by. But this week it's done, son. That trivia was over. Okay. Yeah. Not the same? You just went off on a different path just now (laughs) than I I was expecting. Muhammad Ali, (sighs) Evil Knievel. All right. Anyway, so sorry, I didn't mean to get off on the tangent on interviews, interrogations, and everything. I think that the important thing to remember here is to, one, set personal boundaries with our kids, help them understand that. Two, teach them about the tricky people, not just the stranger danger. And three, remember that Max is the trivia king. Those Got are the it. three takeaways from this week's episode. Okay. Fair? Sure. Fair. Okay. So again, please do us a favor. Spread the word about our podcast. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we get better. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at Mysteries and Mimosas Podcast. We're on Facebook. TikTok, YouTube, we're almost taking over the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty close, right? Right. All right. What do you have to add? I just want to say thank you for listening. And don't forget to check us out on mysteriesandmimosas.net where you can find all of our episodes and the source material and photos and other information for this episode. Very well. And signing off, thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.